This week, we are continuing a series uh, called Starting Strong. And what we've been talking about for the last four weeks and continuing for the next few is we're, we're, we're talking about the early church and what the early church looked like. And I don't mean the early church as in like the early living, living spring, the early years. I mean like the New Testament church, the church of the first century, like 2,000 years ago church. Um, and, and first and foremost, the church... The early church was a movement of the Spirit of God among a uh, gathering of people. And, and that played out in a few different ways. There, first, there was a literal gathering of people. The word ecclesia, that is the word for church, and that literally translates to gathering. And so the church was a, was a gathering of people who lived radical lives, devoting, uh, devoted to, uh, to the apostles' teachings, to fellowship, to shared meals together, to prayer. And so you have this, this group of people that are devoted to, to these things. And so second, you have this church, uh, this gathering of people that share a, an experience of baptism by the Holy Spirit. And most, for most of them in, uh, in that, we've, that we've talked about so far, that happened on the day of Pentecost, so 50 days after Jesus' resurrection, um, and, and you have, uh, on this day, there's like uh, tongues of fire and people speaking in other languages and uh, people accusing them of getting drunk early in the morning. It's kind of crazy. It's great. Um, great story. Have fun reading that. Uh, but then the, the third way, you have this group of people that work together uh, to care for the, those on the margins, the poor, the orphan, the widow, the sick, the resident alien, those people who had a harder time caring for themselves. Uh, they, they were on the margins of society. And so the early church was united by these things, uh, by, by these three, three things that we've already talked about in the last few weeks. But I think something was missing. Uh, as we've talked for the last four weeks, we've read seven chapters in, in the book of Acts. And if you remember the first week when John introduced this series, we, we read Jesus's thesis statement, if you will, the, his thesis on how the church, his vision for how the church would look and what the whole book of Acts is all about. And so we, let's go ahead and uh, take a look at that. It says, it isn't for you to know the times or seasons that your father has set by his own authority. Rather, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. So Jesus says this, and yet for the last four weeks, for seven chapters of the book of Acts, seven chapters after this, we don't see the church go anywhere other than the city of Jerusalem. And so I think that there's something missing. Like, track with me, if you will. This is a movement of God's spirit, but I, I think a movement is only ever actually a movement when it moves. <laughs> what? When, when there's something happening, when uh, a movement is, is no longer a movement if it ceases to, to create change, if, it's, if it stops uh, growing and, and uh, shaping things. And so I, I, I want to, I uh, just looking at the scriptures, I, I've, hint, I, I've read the Bible. Um, <laughs> God's spirit is not going to be limited to the city of Jerusalem. And so that's what we're talking about today is 
how the church expanded, how the church grew and spread beyond the walls of this one city. Because Jesus, he said early on, his last words before he ascended into heaven is, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the end of the earth. And so we're going to talk about how the church got to the end of the earth. Um, Not all of it, but... uh, (laughs) Last Sunday, Pastor John shared a little bit about this guy, Stephen. And if you're, if you're in a small group, you actually probably got to read a little bit of his story. If, if you're not in a small group, this is my little plug for small groups, join one. <laughs> Write it on your connection cards, join a small group. I'll, I'll connect with you this week to, to plug you in. But small groups are where uh, we, we've talked about how the early church was devoted to the apostles' teachings, to uh, fellowship and uh, sharing meals together and prayer. All of that happens in the small group. That's the meat of church, I think. Uh, You guys can come here and listen to John or I or someone else tell you what we think about the Bible, but your small groups is where you're going to engage with Scripture with each other and with yourself. And so that's my little plug for small groups. Join one um, if you're not already in one. But if you are, you might have gotten to read the story of Stephen uh, and and his martyrdom. And, And what I mean by martyrdom is he was the first Christian killed for his faith in Jesus Christ. This guy, Stephen, he, he, was, he was speaking some really cool theology, going through the history of, the, of, uh, of Israel, and he said some things that made people upset with him. And they started throwing stones at him. So if I make you upset today, please don't throw stones at me. I'm asking you, uh, begging you actually, but I want to say that I think this is, this is where the true persecution of the church started, is at the, at the murder of Stephen. And so we're, we're going to read the last verse of his martyrdom and kind of what that led into. Falling to his knees, Stephen shouted, Lord, don't hold this sin against them. Then he died. Saul was in full agreement with Stephen's murder. At that time, the church in Jerusalem began to be subjected to vicious harassment. Everyone except the apostles was scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria. Some pious men buried Stephen and deeply grieved over him. Saul began to wreak havoc against the church. Entering one house after another, he would drag off both men and women and throw them into prison. I want you guys to to hold on to that name, Saul. We're going to come back to him in, in just a little bit. But Stephen's murder instigated a mass exodus from the city of Jerusalem. We often call this the diaspora or the scattering. And basically, we're saying that the entire church fled Jerusalem, except for the, the disciples or the apostles. And the, I, I want to go further and say that these people were leaving their place of comfort and privilege. And you'll hear me say that a couple times tonight or today. But they left their place of comfort and privilege. They might have been getting persecuted, but Jerusalem was the only place in the entire Roman Empire that Jews weren't treated, uh, Jewish people weren't treated terribly. They, they were the only group of people that were allowed to worship their only one God uh, and not worship the, the emperor in Rome. And so in Jerusalem was safe for ethnic Jews and, and even Christians to a degree. But it was also a place where the temple was built. And that's where all these Jewish people have been worshiping for God. And that's the only place that they could really worship and offer sacrifices. And that's where the church leadership was. 
The early church leadership was all in Jerusalem. And so while there, there was persecution there, Jerusalem still held a place of comfort and privilege for Christians, the early church. And they left. They fled. What happened next? Those who had been scattered moved on, preaching the good news along the way. I think that this verse is really cool. It's very powerful. They, they left their place of privilege. They're, they're now being persecuted. Anyone that comes across a Christian, has, especially if, they're, if you're a Jewish person, you basically are, are taking your rights and you can, you can attack Christians. You can arrest them. Uh, and we'll come back to, to, to Saul in a little bit who is doing just that. But these Christians who fled Jerusalem, who left their place of comfort and privilege, are still preaching the good news to everyone they come across. All their would-be persecutors. And people are coming to Jesus. They, they left their place of comfort and privilege, and they're still preaching the good news. I, I, we're talking about persecution today and, and kind of how that brought a lot of growth to the church. But persecution isn't just something that happened in other places. In fact, persecution is something that led the gospel to other places. Let me say that again. Persecution didn't just happen in other places for the early church. Persecution was the early churches and the gospel's vehicle to those other places. I, I, want, I want everyone to hear me today at Facebook, hear me. I'm not advocating for persecution. I'm not, I, I don't want... I don't want people being exterminated or driven out uh, into exile or, or subjugated based on religion. I don't want that for any group of, of people. I'm also not saying that everything happens for a reason, that flowery language that means absolutely nothing to people that are experiencing pain and loss and that are in the midst of it. That's not what I'm saying. I, I don't think God's desire is for destruction or, or death. I don't think God desires persecution of his people. But I do think that he chooses to use all things for his good. And so while we're on the, on the subject, of, subject of caveats, let me also just say that I don't think the American church is, is being persecuted today. You might disagree with me. That's okay. I, but I, that's, that's, I don't think that the church is, in America is being persecuted today. And I, I, whatever your, your favorite uh, speakers or or news networks might say, we might be getting stripped of privilege. And that, I think that's a good distinction. We might be getting stripped of our privileges. The, the church has held a place of authority and power for a long time in the West, since Emperor Constantine made Christianity illegal and Emperor Theodosius in the Roman Empire in 380 AD. For 1,700 years, the church has held a place of privilege and power. And so I think today what we're seeing is a, a stripping away of privilege, but that doesn't necessarily equal persecution. And, and there are places in this world that Christian persecution is very real. It's, it's happening. It, but I, I think that, the, for better or worse, the U.S. is a pretty safe place for Christians. So I'll get off that, that tangent. Um, as some of you know, uh, about a month ago, I got to visit Rome for my bestie's wedding. Yes, I said bestie, and yes, I said Rome. As in, like, the the place that Gladiator was shot and Roman Holiday. They're known for like the cool hats with the feathers on top. Um, pizza, pasta, other Italian food, which they just call food, I guess. Um, <laughs> learned that the hard way. Uh, 
Rome was the center of the Roman Empire. The, the Roman Empire spanned the entire known world at one point, uh, at one point in their existence. And, and so I got to visit this place. Uh, and, and the thing is, like, they, they did some, like, terrible things. Like, they're, they're pretty violent. They, they, they're the ones that, that we can attribute the murder of Jesus to. Um, the destruction of the second temple in about 35 years later, uh, the enslavement of 100,000 Jewish people just from the city of Jerusalem. And, and so I got to visit this place that's, despite its, its violent history, is absolutely beautiful. Uh, it, it, was, it was a phenomenal trip of just seeing these gorgeous places. And so I brought some pictures. I, I put together a little, uh, little uh, scrapbook uh, to make you all jealous, I mean, to share with you. Uh, and so this is the Basilica of St. Cecilia. Uh, this is probably one of, one of the coolest places I got to visit. It, it's, very, it's very different from other basilicas and churches uh, in Rome. It's very feminine. It's, it's very bright and vibrant and smells really good instead of inc- like incense. Um, but St. Cecilia, th- this basilica is built over her, her tomb and her home. And it was built there after she was martyred, after she was killed for her faith, her and her husband. And so the first thing I learned about Cecilia, she's fascinating, is that she, when she got married, she actually refused to consummate the marriage with her husband because he wasn't a Christian, which I thought was hilarious. Um, and so when he became a Christian later, uh, he, the, the, the awesome thing is he became a Christian, but several years later, he, he and his wife were both killed for their faith. And so... Because she shared her faith with him, because she shared the good news with him, it wasn't just a happy wife, happy life faith. It wasn't just, I'm going to say this and do these things so I can have sex with my wife. It was, I'm going to die for being a Christian. That St. Cecilia in the middle on the far right, um, really just beautiful place. The next picture is of me in the Roman Forum. This is... This has so much history. Like, it, it still blows my nerdy little mind that I got to visit this place. If you don't know me, I, you should know I'm obsessed with history, specifically the Roman Empire. Like, I fell in love with this in junior high, read as many of those, those books and watched the History Channel, and just became obsessed with the Roman Empire. And then when I became a Christian, I became obsessed with the church in the Roman Empire. And I, I fell in love with our history as a church. And so I got to visit this place where you have Caesar's grave right there. You have the Arch of Titus, which was built by Jewish slaves to commemorate the Roman victory over Israel and the destruction of Jerusalem. You have the Basilica of Constantine, who legalized Christianity in the Roman Empire. And then behind the person, you can't see it, behind the person taking the picture is the Roman Senate, where Debates happened, laws were, uh, laws were passed, and world-changing decisions were made. Cicero, Julius Caesar, Pompey, Augustus, all spoke, spoke and stood in, those, in this hall debating and making, change, or making decisions that would change their known world. And so I got to, I got to go there. Like, the, the place that I'm, the cobblestone that I'm sitting on, I'm pretty sure Julius Caesar's horse pooped there. Uh, it, it was great. <laughs> Um, 
And then my, my personal favorite place that, I, that we got to visit is the Colosseum. And if, you don't, if you're not familiar with the Colosseum, it's this huge amphitheater. It's got a very dark history, too. It's this huge amphitheater that seats about 50 to 80,000 people who all would, would sit or stand and cheer at, uh, at gladiator fights, uh, beast hunts, battle, famous battle reenactments, tortures, cri- executions of criminals and Christians alike in the most creative and spectacular of ways that the Romans could think of. This, this colossal structure was built using the funds stolen from Jerusalem, the sack of Jerusalem. And then it was built by 100,000 Jewish slaves, Jewish and Christian slaves. And, and I, I mean, I, this, is, this is a building that people got famous from because people, people would make tons of money shipping sand from Egypt to Rome to replace the blood-soaked stuff in the Colosseum. Let, let me say that again. People made boatloads of money shipping sand, everyone's least favorite part of going to the beach, from Egypt to Rome to replace the stuff soaked with human blood. And so I just took you guys from, like, cool pictures to super dark. Um, sorry about that. But I want you to look at this next picture. This is one of my most cherished pictures that I, that I took in, in Rome. And it, that's a cross in the Colosseum. That, that's a cross that's standing in the emperor's box, where the emperor used to sat watching Christians being killed for their faith. There, there's a cross in the Colosseum. There, there's a cross in the, emperor, in the imperial box King Jesus now stands where the emperor of Rome once sat. That blows my mind. And, and, I, and I'm not, like, I'm not advocating, like, everyone, all Christians, take up arms, like, take over the nation. I, that's not, like, that's not what I'm, what I'm advocating here. We've seen what power and political authority have done to the church. And I don't just, I'm not just talking about the Catholic church at all. In, in the U.S., you, we see the, the Bible being used to bludgeon people over the head to accomplish a political agenda on a daily basis. And I, I, we're not going to get talk politics today at all, please. Um, but I, 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 want, I, wanna, I just want to point out the fact that we have devoted as a church, as, as the people of God, we've devoted so much time and energy and resources into protecting our places of privilege and comfort. We, we've built walls around around these places of, of privilege and comfort. And when you see a politicized Christianity, what you're seeing is people building walls and fortresses around these places that, are, that provide security. And, and that's, normal, that's normal human behavior. Hum, like, humans just do that. We, we try to protect the things that give us security, that allow us a place of refuge. That's normal human behavior. But my question is, is that Christian behavior? Is that how Jesus has called you and I to live? Let me put it another way. 20 years before uh, Christianity became a legal religion, the pagan emperor Julian was writing to his, uh, to his, high, chief, his high priests of the, of the pagan religion. They, and he was, his goal was to, to bring a resurgence of, 
of the pagan religion of people worshiping Mars and Jupiter and Hercules and all the Roman gods. And this, this is what he says to them. He says, recent Christian growth was caused by their moral character, even if pretended. I think that's hilarious. Uh, and by their benevolence towards strangers and care for the graves of the dead. He also says, I think that when the poor happen to be neglected and overlooked by our priests, aka by you guys, the impious Galileans, those Christians, observed this and devoted themselves to benevolence. They support not only their poor, but ours as well. What Emperor Julian is talking about is how Christians responded to people in crisis. Like, when the plagues, there, there were these two plagues that swept through the empire of Rome uh, within about 100 years of each other, and each one took out about a third of the population of, of any area that they went to, that, that the plague was found in. And, and the, there are vivid accounts of people leaving their family and friends in the streets to die because they were scared of catching these illnesses. And it was like smallpox and the measles. Like, people were scared of catching these because they didn't know how to cure it. And so what, what Christians at the time, when they were being heavily persecuted, uh, decided to do is they formed armies and took over the Empire of Rome. I'm just kidding. They formed armies of nurses. Not soldiers, nurses. The early church devoted themselves to caring for the poor and the sick and the dying. And they often traded their lives for the lives of the sick that they, that they took on. People would live that were sick and then become immune because Christians were nursing them back to health. And, and you can imagine that, it, put, your play, put yourself in the place of one of these, these pagan people that were sick. And your family and your friends are no longer coming to bring you food or water or care for you. But this random person who for whatever reason, is bringing you food and is caring for you on a daily basis. They're providing for your basic needs. And what if that person it gets sick and then they die? You, but you, you have time to ask them, like, why are you doing this? And they, they share the gospel with you. It's not hard to imagine that some of these pagan, uh, pagan people would start to seriously consider this whole Jesus thing. And you can ask why and why and why. And I think that ultimately the, the reason that people would start to consider this is because Christians were moving away from their places of comfort and privilege, risking their lives, their families, their homes, their finances to serve the people and, and care for people that, who could no longer care for themselves. And so may, maybe one thing that you guys uh, think about, we think about as we leave here today is who are the people and who are those people in our society today? Who are those people in our world who can't necessarily care for themselves today? When, Christian, when Christians held no political authority or privilege, the early church focused their, their entire energy was intimately and at, at its most basic level a radical kind of love for their enemies and their persecutors. When, when, I, was, when I was preparing this, this uh, message today, I was thinking of this guy, Ananias, who he's only mentioned in seven verses of the, of the book of Acts. And Ananias, he, 
uh, he has, his actions are probably some of the most impactful of the entire Bible. And, and I say that because, uh, because we're going to revisit this guy named Saul uh, in, in, in a bit. But we find Ananias at, uh, in the midst of, of the persecution that Saul is wreaking havoc on the church. And we, we find Ananias in his home in Damascus praying. And he was probably in Jerusalem, and he probably fled Jerusalem uh, to get away from the, the persecution. And so he's in his home praying to God, and God, God speaks to him, and he says, Ananias, uh, you, must go, you must go to Judas's home where Saul, you know, the guy who is breathing murderous threats against the church, where Saul is staying and heal his sight. And the text says that Ananias countered God, like in a debate. Uh, we've seen tons of those lately, right? Ananias counters God and he says, he's done horrible things to your people and is here to arrest everyone who calls on your name, namely me. Ananias was risking his life just being in the same city as Saul. And God's reply, he just says, go. This man is the agent I have chosen to carry my name before Gentiles, kings, and Israelites. I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. I, I think Ananias is just like, oh, suffer, cool. Why didn't you just say that? Um, <laughs> all seriousness. Ananias goes to Saul's home. He leaves his place of comfort and privilege, the place that he, he was probably the safest at in, in the city of Damascus. He leaves his place of comfort and privilege. He lays his hands on Saul, the persecutor. He calls him brother, heals him, and immediately he baptizes Saul. And several, several chapters later, Saul is given a new name, Paul. And Paul is responsible for approximately half the books of the New Testament. Many church plants all throughout the Roman Empire, he, he's the first person that we know got to preach the gospel to the nobility of Rome, including the emperor, because he was a Roman citizen. So he got to preach before the Roman emperor. He also suffered... Uh, beatings, arrests. He suffered uh, floggings, shipwrecks, and and more for the sake of Jesus' name. And get this, we can trace his story back to one man who acted out of love and healed him. We can trace his story back to one man who stepped away from a place of comfort and privilege, and now we have like half of our New Testament. And the church is, would never be the same after, after Saul became Paul. This movement of the Holy Spirit that we're talking about, that we call the early church, grew because its people moved away from, the, from places of comfort and privilege. They moved into places where they were not comfortable. They were not privileged. They weren't even safe. But the movement of God's Spirit had room to grow there. And they, they preach Jesus' good news all the way. So as we wrap up and Audra comes back to the stage, I, the question I want to ask you, and I, I want you guys to be thinking about this week, is are, is your faith comfortable? Are you comfortable? What, what would your life look like if you decided to move away from the places of 
comfort and privilege in your life? What if you chose to move away from the places that you fortified and built walls around to keep yourself safe? What would our church look like if that's how all of us chose to live? My friends, I, I, we, we got to celebrate an amazing service of baptisms and worship. And so I don't want to let, let our time go without thanking God for the opportunity to openly uh, celebrate, celebrate their decisions, to publicly declare their faith. But I, I, I would encourage us all to step away from our places of comfort and privilege, or at least start thinking about that this week. So let me pray for us, and uh, we'll, we'll uh, sing one more song. Father God, thank you so much for today, for this time that we get to be together and worship, to, worship you together. I thank you for, uh, for the words that you've spoken uh, through me, and I pray that, that anything that's not of you is cast aside. But God, I pray that, uh, that we hear you, that we feel your presence, that we know that, we know that you're here. Lord, I pray for, uh, not for safety, but God, that you would use each and every one of us to reach your world, to share the good news, to share what you have done for our world and who you became for us, God. We love you. We give you all the honor and all the praise and all the glory forever. In your son, Jesus Christ, I pray.